0: At this point, I mean, we've seen repairs from all over the planet. You know, guy guy gets up at 5:30 in the morning in Melbourne, Australia, to fix his sewing machine on a Zoom. We've got this um, young man in Uganda. He's a refugee from South Sudan. He's deploying repair in his community in this refugee camp. And he's, you know, he's posting on the Discord server, looking for stuff, looking for help. And he gets help from all these repairers around the world. So that's enormously gratifying. You know, if, it's a, if life's about playing the biggest game you can, you know, this is, this is sort of moving in that direction.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of What The Fix podcast. I am your co-host, Paul Roberts. I'm the founder of Secure Repairs and uh, editor of the Fight to Repair newsletter.
2: And I'm Jack Monahan, co-editor of Fight to Repair newsletter. And we're joined by
1: Mr. Peter Mui. Peter Mui, welcome to What The Fix podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, guys. It's an honor.
1: It's a pleasure. Peter is the founder of Fix-It Clinic and uh, has just done amazing work promoting Fix-It Clinics um, all across uh, the country uh, and all across the world, really. And uh, so we're going to be doing a... (laughs) You can fix it. Absolutely. We're going to be doing a... um, We're going to be doing a uh, interview with Peter and um talking about um his work so uh peter welcome thanks for having me so but before that what we're going to do our our normal news roundup um where we talk about some of the uh, uh right to repair news of the week and the big kind of repair stories from from around the globe and um Jack, I'm really interested in um, your story and it's very topical and it's what everybody wants to hear about. So I'm going to let you start with yours.
2: Yeah. So this week I was I was doom scrolling on Twitter and I found uh, like another another gripe that people have with Apple. And so there was this big Apple event And they're releasing, you know, Apple's new iPhone, new Apple Watch. And the one thing that, like, really got people going was there's this new safety feature on the new iPhones, which essentially gives them satellite um, connectivity when it comes to, like, SOS. So, like, if you're in an emergency and you don't have cell service, it'll actually route to a satellite. And, which is pretty impressive, but the gripe that people have with it is that they only give you that... um, They only give you that for two years. And so they give you it free for two years, and then they start making you pay. And what's interesting about it is it has the functionality to do that. Like the phone has the functionality to do that, but they actively stop it after those two years if you stop paying. And it's pretty interesting in particular because... The idea behind this is like you'd be using this in life or death situations, very serious situations. And the idea of Apple just turning it off because you're not paying like the, I don't know, dollar to five dollars a month seems a bit excessive. I'm not actually sure what the cost is, but people were blown away.
1: We'll find out. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I, 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 I saw people kind of pointing that out as, you know, yet another kind of you own the hardware, but you're being nickled and dimed for the feature. On the one hand, um, you know I'm thinking of like cars and OnStar, right? So that that's been in cars for years and decades now. Um, you know, you you get it. You know, the hardware's there and and the service is there, but you got to pay for it to get the actual be- benefits of the OnStar service. Um, so I guess it's not that unusual. But it does seem to be like part of a trend, right, of, um, you know, as people, some people call it the sassing, you know, software as a service or, or the, or the, um, yeah, you know, of, of everything that increasingly, and we've seen this with like BMW and their seat warmer subscriptions, right? So the hardware is in the device, um, you in theory should just be able to use it, but it's gated and, um, and now uh, coupled with a subscription program. Um,
2: yeah. And the point you've made too is like you wouldn't do this with windshield wipers for right. BMW's case. And so you're kind of you trying... Yeah. <laughs> I mean I wouldn't put it past any company, but yeah, no, I think in particular this spoke to me because it seems like such a serious like if there's a manhunt for somebody, like do you think that they would turn the feature on? Probably, but because you're not paying for it, they're just trying to squeeze that extra money out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This does seem to be a thing. This is definitely a thing, and people like this one. You know, you might not mad at mine too much, but there are going to be more of these, and they they're going to be they're going to seem more kind of, you know, give me a break. Um, but there are definitely going to be more of these, right, on all kinds of devices. Um, okay. Um, My story for the week is news that came out uh, just, I think, yesterday from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which after six years finally released the final version of its automobile cybersecurity guidance, guidelines um, for automakers to uh, read and uh, adhere to. In theory, it's, it's voluntary. They're not complied. They're not compelled to comply with it. Um, this is a really big deal um, because this guidance, unlike the the draft guidance that was released six years ago, um, makes really clear that the NHTSA wants automakers to balance the... Uh, priority of cybersecurity in vehicles with the priority of serviceability and, and, and say um, specifically in the guidance that by serviceability, they mean the ability of owners to choose their own repair people, owner authorized versus manufacturer authorized repair. Um, and this is a really big development, um, first of all, because the previous guidelines were kind of vague on that. Second of all, because in Massachusetts right now, there is a law case in federal court uh, over Massachusetts' expansion of its Automobile Right to Repair Act, which is basically a 10-year-old law, um, to include access to telematics data that is hinging right now on these very um, guidelines on what the federal government is asking automakers to do around safety and cybersecurity. Um, and the uh, autom- the um, automotive the Association for, what is it? The, yeah, <laughs> Automobile Innovation Association or whatever it is, has argued that um, they can't comply with Massachusetts law because it's gonna require them to sacrifice cybersecurity and therefore you know um, go against what the federal government's been telling them to do. These guidelines presumably would make it nice and clear that uh, the federal government expects them to balance these two things um, and not sacrifice serviceability in the name of cybersecurity. So it's the timing is really interesting. Um, that case is really coming. Hopefully we'll get a decision out of the federal judge uh, soon. Um, and this is uh, kind of well, well-timed for that. So really big news, you know, a, a, a federal agency coming down on, clearly on the side of um, owner's right to choose their own repair person, which is a big deal. Peter, what's on your radar?
0: Yeah, if I can talk to um, what's going on from the first thing, you know, there's also this article from The Guardian this week about how AirTags are a gift to stalkers that, you know, basically here's another product where people don't understand the implications. I mean, you get a warning there, you know, Apple's trying to back out of it. But even the act of very disabling the AirTag might gives indication to the stalker that you can that they might escalate their behavior. Oh.
1: I don't know if you've seen like Apple will warn you if there's an air tag around you that you don't like that you're not that's not paired to your device. So um I've gotten a couple of those um you know out, out and about. Um and um yeah it's it's one of these cool new technologies. I saw somebody else on Twitter raving about air tags in his luggage that, you know, he put air tags in his luggage and now we can tell exactly when it's moving from the, you know, terminal to the plane. And when it's on the, you know, I mean, I can see it as it's moving through the airport, which is great. I mean, that's great. Um, (laughs) Makes it a lot easier to keep track of your luggage. But like you said, Peter, yeah, the, the security and privacy implications, technologies are not, well thought out, right? Um, the, the features are moving ahead of the society in some ways,
2: right? Know.
0: And they used to be the purview of governments, right? And then we had laws that said, well, they can only do that if they have a warrant or something like that. But but here, here's the whole civilization way ahead of this. You know, in some ways, it's it's miraculous. In other ways, that, you know, that we're talking about, it's a little bit scary and nefarious. You know, that that we're, we're a little bit ahead of our ability to understand what the, what the implications are for these things in our, in our yeah. society.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think of like, even like, you know, Tesla's autopilot, you know, like have why there are, why there are cars out on highways, you know, allowing drivers to take their hands off steering wheels and run the car with software and yet, and getting in accidents. And yet, you know, the government has mostly been silent on that, you know, just kind of, Sure, you know, use the national highway system as your test bed. That's great.
2: <laughs> I mean, we're talking about this court case that is based on a like a law that was overwhelmingly passed and that's taken like a full year to get an answer on something that we already know everybody agrees with. So the idea that, that takes that long, the fact that we expect we would expect the government to be proactive about this. Yeah, well, on something even more you're right. like, nuanced. Yes.
1: The the wheels of justice turn slowly. The wheels of of legislation turn even more slowly. (laughs) Policy. So, yeah.
0: So I don't know who to attribute this to, but I heard this quote I echo a lot, which says, government, solving yesterday's problems today. Maybe. (laughs) Yes. Maybe.
1: (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Um, And with that, Peter, um, so... Uh, thanks for, thanks for joining us on our news roundup. And, um, with that, I think let's, let's, let's start talking about you and, and fix it clinic and, um, maybe just sort of introduce yourself a little bit to the, what the fix audience and, and give us your kind of origin story, if you could, um, how you found your way to the, you know, fix it and repair community where you're a, you're a huge presence, um, in in that community.
0: Well, Geez, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm blushing, if you can tell, but um, geez, I, you know, I think it. I was always a tinkerer. I'll, I'll go back as far as talking about how my father gave me a mechanical alarm clock when I was a little kid to, that would, had broken to take apart. And of course, when I started to take it apart, springs and things went flying everywhere. I never got it back together again. Um, but But I was always interested in that sort of stuff. And um, you know, a few years back, I, I mean, I was always preparing my own stuff. I didn't feel like I owned it unless I took it apart, really. And, and I was realizing, you know, a lot of stuff that people were throwing away, was fixable. Now I live in Berkeley, California, which is a f- very affluent community. And it's amazing what people put out on trash day. And I'm like standing over it saying, I can't believe they're throwing this out. So I, you know, I would start to bring stuff home to fix much to my wife's chagrin. She tells me everything's got to pay rent. Um. But, but we thought, but I thought to have this event where we just put tools out and made them available to the general public to see if they could disassemble their own stuff and see how much of it we could fix. And that was what? thirteen years ago now. so so, at this point, this thing fix a clinic has become uh, what I say, it's a hobby that's gotten way out of control <laughs> um, and it's it's become you know now during the pandemic a, a kind of a global phenomenon. You know, other people were doing it in other places, so I, I can't like take credit for the whole thing, of course. But we're all tied together now in a way that I'm like on podcasts like yours, talking about it.
1: So that first fix it clinic, thirteen years ago, where 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 was it held? Oh, December first, two thousand and nine, at
0: the UC Berkeley Albany Village Community Center. So it's UC Berkeley Graduate Student Housing.
1: And and good turnout. Like, how did you promote it? Like, what 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 happened?
0: We promoted it inside the community center. They had a newsletter, a weekly email newsletter. So we told the community center residents, hey, we're having this event in the community center, see what, uh, and we had, what? I had one other fix it coach and two people, I think showed up with things. Two or three people showed up with things, but, but look, but, but, you know, that's the other thing that it's not about the number of people. It's about the quality of the people at this point. I mean, I'm really looking for the people who are the change agents, the activists, the the people who are going to be the influencers in our society, because the reality of the, the situation we have at the moment is that sadly, we're not paying the true cost of the item when we purchase it. There's all these upstream and downstream costs that are not factored into the purchase price. And. And honestly, there's a lot of economic privilege associated with repair at this point. You know, we have people who can choose to repair because it is so difficult, and and the, and if you factor in the time and and the other energy associated with doing it, it probably you know, an, an, a rational economic actor makes the choice that says, no, I should just throw this away and buy another one.
1: Yeah, it's so funny you say that because I, I run with a, a gentleman who's uh, you know around around my age. Um, uh you know, software engineer, work, works at a technology company in in Cambridge, and um he was sa- he his refrigerator, ten year old refrigerator, um broke. Uh I think the compressor went or something. And he was having a lot of trouble, you know, getting even somebody out to look at it. I think he ended up having to pay $150 just to have someone come and kind of assess the problem for him. Um and uh, you know, they, they sort of put some coolant in it and maybe got it working a little bit better, but as it turned out, I think it needed a new compressor and they were basically like, you know, here's how much is this is going to cost. Frankly, we don't really do this repair. You should just get a new one. You know, he knows I'm very involved in the right to repair movement. And so he's like, you know, I feel really bad about Apollo. I think I'm just going to get a new one. And I said, no, you shouldn't feel bad at all, because that's the rational decision for you to make. Right. Like the problem isn't you being, a, a, you know, having a moral failure. The problem is the way this market is constructed. Right. If there were a healthy market for appliance repair, this would not be costing you nine hundred dollars. Right. This would cost you. Half that much or three, you know, whatever it would cost you would it would make sense for you to do the repair versus get the new thing. So the problem is the structure of the market, not your moral failing, you know. Um, So, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think sometimes I don't know. I I think this notion that, you know, like. Consumers should be, you know, saving the environment through their purchasing decisions, or you know, something like that. Is so. has been so ingrained in us, and it and it's it's just so silly, you know. Um, well,
0: we also get this inconsistent, contradictory message that says we are in a capitalist society that requires growth. I mean, you know, this very idea that GDP is measured, they always make those examples of whenever there's an earthquake or a bad fire, that that actually helps GDP numbers because everybody has to rebuild. Yes. Whereas that seems like it's squandering stuff. Yes. And, you know, so Since GDP might not now. be the
1: best measure of economic wealth
0: and well-being.
1: <laughs> right. Like earthquake, Absolutely. positive GDP event. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. So, so we look at the situation where, we we encourage people to buy again, you know, we want we want to see that economic activity in purchasing new as opposed to in 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 keeping things maintained at their highest utility possible for as long as possible. And and it's not just us. I mean, decades ago the Japanese had this rule about cars, so it's basically a, a three-year-old car got taxed so heavily it was you were incentivized to just trade it in and buy a new Japanese buy a new car rather than Rather than try and keep the one on the road, so I mean it, it's it's it, it's woven into economic policy in our society in a way that somehow needs to get unwound in slowly and carefully. So,
1: so what are what are fixit clinics like? Um, well, let's talk. You know, so you started thirteen years ago. What's changed since then? What do they look like now? Well, so so
0: you're talking at a particular junction where we've where we're exiting a pandemic. And so, 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 first of all, to understand Fix a Clinic is only one of many models of what we'll call community repair events. All right. And the other community repair event that most people think about is a repair cafe, started by Mateen Postma in the Netherlands. She's a she's a friend. We 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 collaborate on collecting data across the world on our repair activities and stuff like that. Their model is more about Handing you a fish <laughs> they they will they will offer to fix it for you, so in a typical repair cafe environment, you know they sit down and you know and 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 it's there's music it's it's literally a cafe or some some social environment and and you're talking to your repairer, but you're not necessarily having to participate from the get go. We were always about teaching people how to fish you know it's, and it's I'll say more broadly or that we were really about conveying generalizable critical thinking and troubleshooting skills but just using people's broken stuff, it's the excuse to motivate them to come in the door. And and so we were always about that for any number of good reasons I can go into for detail. So, we, so we've been executing on that model. And then when the pandemic hits, you can't hold in-person events anymore. So I embraced the Zoom lifestyle and immediately pivoted to online resources. And what that allowed us to do since everybody, I mean, this pandemic in some ways, I hate to say it was an enormous opportunity to, to leverage where everybody was shut down, no repair activities, repair cafe, fix a clinic, whatever were happening. So I basically said, hey guys, I'm gonna throw this big party on the internet. Everybody, you know, everybody come play. And it worked. <laughs> so so at this point, we've got the the Zoom fix a clinics. I call them the intergalactic Zoom fix a clinics where repairers from around the world repair things from around the world. And then we launched this discord server for two reasons. One. It allows us to basically deploy repair 24/7 around the clock around the world. High schoolers like it because they're using Discord for their gaming stuff, so we basically have a server on Discord. I've repurposed Discord for repair.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll link to that and, actually, right, Jack? I mean, we should definitely. Like yeah, that that.
0: that that that's and so that's been really amazing and really gratifying. I mean, at this point, I mean, we've seen repairs from all over the planet. You know, guy guy gets up at 5:30 in the morning in Melbourne, Australia, to fix his sewing machine on a Zoom. We've got this. Um, young man in Uganda, he's a refugee from South Sudan. He's deploying repair in his community, in this refugee camp. And he's, you know, he's posting on the discord server, looking for stuff, looking for help. And he gets help from all these repairers around the world. So that's enormously gratifying. You know, if it's, if life's about playing the biggest game you can, you know, this is, this is sort of moving in that direction. So, um, so, so that's where we are now where we're basically have these hybrid things. As we return to in-person, we're gonna have hybrid events with Discord online at the same time, and we've, we've successfully done that where none of the local people, none of the people in the event at that time really understand how to fix this thing. So we get on Discord and say, hey, is any, is anybody on right now who has seen this before? Right. And lo and behold, you know, it happens.
1: Yeah, it's, I I, w- I went to one of the intergal. So first of all, you helped organize in my home community, which is Belmont, Massachusetts. You helped organize a bunch of fixit clinics prior to the pandemic. We haven't done an in-person one since then, um, but we should talk because I want to get another one going because they were very very popular here, really good turnout. Um, and you have this whole network of fixit professionals who will come to these events. You know, um, you know if you give them notice, they'll show up with their tools and and fix all manner of stuff, uh, electronics, um, um, you know, lamps and furniture. I mean, people think about smartphones, but it's it's everything really, um, clothing even. Um, and then I actually, I had a, a, about a 10, 10 year old Samsung flat screen TV that broke. Um, screen just went dark, like turns on and everything, but no image. Um, so I went to one of your intergalactic um, uh, Fix-It clinics last winter and um, got some expert advice on um, replacing the uh, backlight, the LED backlight on that. So, um, which I'm gonna just be honest, still sitting in my basement. Have not done that repair yet, but <laughs> but I know what I need to do, and I just need to order the part and get it done.
0: Yeah, like I said, there's a lot of economic privilege associated with repair. All right, yeah. so a bunch of things. One, these are not experts. Okay, these are your neighbors. Yeah. Okay? Everybody knows something about something. So so in an ideal fix a clinic, everybody's rolling up their shirt sleeves and helping everybody else out. Yeah. Um and then the second thing was that thing you said about having them in Belmont. So they're they're being held like we've got one held, scheduled for Medford, we've got one scheduled for Harvard University, we've got one scheduled again for uh, what is that um uh some library kind of near um you know Worcester, Worcester. So um, yeah, you know West of
1: Worcester. There we go. Uh, um, there we
0: go. Um, well, I lived in Central Square. I know you went to yeah, you yeah, went to so, MIT, so I know you got yeah, you got the yeah, accent down.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> um, uh, and 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 I, this is my, this has been my struggle is that most organ most places see this as a very hyper local activity, like you know. God forbid somebody in Belmont should go to one in Arlington or something like that. And I'm really trying to make this kind of like a regional, like, it, re, these are really regional initiatives. I mean, if you've noticed, the yeah. repair coaches You're don't right. just come from Belmont. They're, they're descending on you from all over. The, the, and, yeah. and I, you know, we have people, environmentally it's terrible, but we have people who will drive 50 miles for an event. And, yeah. you know, because, and, and I'm trying to keep that not happening. And yet, once again, like, you know, when you talk about policy and stuff, like, when I, I work with mass, DEP on their funding for these things, and they give the funding to a specific city or town. And I've been trying to say, rather than give the funding to a specific city or town for a repair van, can you think about some way to make it so that it's spread out? Give more money to four or five adjacent towns. Yes. You know, to sort of hold and promote right. this locally. That's because, right. Because, you know, so, but, but you know, do you, do you see what you it do.
2: As, as a fundamentally local, like, do you see it rooted in, local community what's the lens that you kind of bring to it that's changing for me now that we have these the the discord
0: server and the intergalactic zoom fixa clinics because I'm, I'm learning so much by tapping into a global repair community i mean you know i'll, I'll give you an ex- all right this is a one minute example but it gives an example of what's possible so a woman in Millbrae, california had an electronic fan that was busted she brought it to the zoom And so they put her in a Zoom breakout room and they show her how to take it apart. She'd never taken apart anything before, all right? Then she takes it apart, she takes her camera, she puts it up close to the circuit board. A repairer in Belgium notices that there's burnt components on the circuit board. There are some diodes that are burnt, but they're so badly burnt, you can't even read the values. A repairer in the UK has a friend with a similar fan. So he gets that friend to open up his fan and read the values of the, capa- of the diodes off of it, right? Then a repairer in Minneapolis gets on eBay and figures out how to order the diodes for this woman in Milbrae so they'll be delivered to her house. And then I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area and I figured out how to get a local repairer to deliver her a soldering kit, you know, uh, contactlessly. I mean, this was in the early days of the pandemic when everyone was freaking out. She gets on the next Zoom, they go into a Zoom breakout room, they teach her how to desolder the, the, the diodes, install the new diodes, solder them in put it back together thing works. Okay. So very early on we had this validation of this hypothesis. Could we repair as effectively remotely as we could in person? And the answer is heck yeah. Um, So, so like the Belgians are great at electronics who knew, (laughs) or, or, you know, now that we're helping this guy in in Uganda, he needs a a battery for a Dell laptop. And we're like, how the heck do you get somebody a battery for a three-year-old Dell laptop? in this refugee camp, like how, do, how, how is it, how do you work those resources to make that happen? Right. Or how do we help him rebuild the battery that he's got, you know, or, you know, like, Hey,
2: there's just so, so much, there's so much to unpack there. One thing it makes me think of is how products are designed. I'm sure a lot of this just makes you think about how unrepairable products are, but it also makes me think about like, you're talking about Europe. And we kind of talk a lot about using Europe as a foil to the U S just to show the contrast between how the governments treat repair. And so the EU has obviously been way more pro-repair, specifically around electronics, but they're also just like their environmental policies around repair and circular economy are, are more progressive. But can you talk a little bit about the difference between like levels of governmental support between the US and other parts of the world?
0: It's changing fast. So I'm hopeful, you know, now that we um, the FTC is stepping up and And it seems like, in the last couple of years, right to repair has gotten on a lot of people's radar. It didn't get on before, but look the the Europeans have left less to lose because the big the big companies that are making money off of the status quo aren't there all right you know the, so so of course, if you try to pass right to repair in california, of course h p and and apple and google they're all going to like- sc- scream buddy murder and 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 well, or quietly pay off legislators behind the scenes, okay <laughs> of course, um, so the Europeans had less to lose to begin with, so they, and, and you know they, they live in a much more densely a dense, a dense situation, so they have a much greater appreciation for the idea that this stuff the way we're living on the planet at the moment is just killing it you know we, you know we, we're all, the more I do this, the more militant I get that basically our consumption is killing the planet, yeah. And we're living in one big. If the pandemic has shown us anything, we're living in one big plastic bag right now. Yeah. So. Um,
1: it's a supermarket plastic bag, by the way.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. One of those really like. Oh, so I'll just say yeah. yeah. So so because of that centralization, because of that weird thing with the European Union having this large large policy office in, in Brussels that is only indirectly responsible to reporting to local legislatures and electorates, they're able to be more interesting and innovative than we've been able to. And the big thing that they passed in the last year was in January, 2021, they passed this, France passed this index of durability or Indice de Durabilité, where they're basically telling manufacturers at the point of purchase, you have to give this number from one to 10 on how durable, how repairable your item is. So that's that's like caused a bunch of people to scramble. It's caused Samsung to make their repair manuals available for their smartphones in French only. So we're scrambling to try to translate them into English. Um, And and with like other repair organizations like the Repair Cafe, we are collecting the data. Right now, it's a manufacturer reported number. So the manufacturer decides that they're an 8.5. And so we're collecting the data to either support or challenge that. So that maybe five years from now, we'll be able to say, oh, you know, they claim that this is an 8.5, but our consumer data shows it's really more like a two.
1: I know you've talked before also just about some of the help that like Repair Cafe got in the early in, in, in its early stages, you know, just in terms of just kind of the civil society over in the EU and just some of the grants and so on that are available to civil society groups like that versus what you had to do and with Fix-It Clinic, which was really pretty much pull yourself up by your bootstraps or there, there were just were not, you know, grants and resources available to promote what you were doing. Um, right. Yeah. So,
0: so I can take some blame for that because I'm not a not-for-profit and I'm still not. And part of that is because I never knew what this thing was going to be when it grew up. So, so I just didn't feel comfortable committing to that. And, and I still don't. I mean, it's morphing all the time. If I had been a not-for-profit, I might have been able to apply for other different types of interesting types of grants, but I was lucky to find some Alameda County where I live in Northern California. uh, Basically, where I'm taking this from a funny angle is I came in from this from the uh, waste disposal component, where municipal waste facilities or local government was interested in doing more and more waste diversion, so they would underwrite the the activities that way. it, it it causes some tension because, of course, they want to have these big events where hundreds of people come, and they want me to measure everything. They want me to weigh everything. You know, basically, they're trying to measure di- waste stream diversion by weight, by tonnage. And, and you know, obviously, we can't fix washing machines and refrigerators at the local public library. I say, fix a clinic is carry-in only, no oversized items. That said, you'd be amazed what <laughs> people consider to be a carry-in item. Yeah. Oh. and, and yeah, it's. Uh, so so I so I can't blame so I can't blame it all on them like for example right now I there is actually National Science Foundation money for informal STEM learning and and I think I could be eligible for that the challenge if I were not for profit I mean I, that's a funny example cuz NSF grant requirements are so draconian even if I were a not-for-profit, it'd be very, very hard and very expensive for me to put in all the accounting procedures and stuff behind the scenes to actually administer one of those grants. But so I'm looking for like university or academic relationships, to, like hopefully finding some champion, some some lab, some researcher in something somewhere who might be interested in taking that on. But but it's okay. I mean, at the moment, so what so, are I basically so you're not that, a, like you're I not said,
1: like a 501c3 uh, or anything like that.
0: I'm not a I'm a sole proprietor.
1: All right. Um what 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 is the one of the surprising things you've learned just in your your years doing fix-it clinics whether it's about you know again th- kind of the throwaway culture what are some of the what are what are some of the dominant kind of themes and patterns that have emerged from the these sessions with, for for you I mean you you have a better view of anyone of you know What's, well, just what's how detached we to are from account.
0: this built world that 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 we that we are are part of. That to me, and maybe this is because you know, I, I hate to say it because it, immediately it's like people hear, well, he went to MIT, he has a degree in electrical engineering, so of course he knows how to fix this stuff. So you know, you know, how does he how does he expect us to do it? And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make this stuff accessible, but I'm still surprised at. Um, sort of the detachment. It, it almost comes, what comes to mind is almost what's happened with our healthcare as well. Or, you know, basically this idea that, uh, you know, the whole system was set up to basically, eh, smoke, eat unhealthily, do whatever you want and we'll patch you up once you get sick kind of situation, right? There, there's the same thing kind of going on with, with, our, with all these consumer devices that we have in our life. Sort of like, eh, it was inexpensive enough to begin with. If it breaks, just, Get us another one. So here's an example here. So great. So some guy shows up at a fix clinic with two of the exact same toaster oven. The first one failed in the first year. He called up the manufacturer and said it broke and he expected them to take it back to be serviced. They said, no, 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 just keep it. We'll just, we trust you. We'll just send you another one. I mean, that it's so, that it's so inexpensive that that's the way that they do the service. And so he was just curious why the first one broke, right? So we see that people uh, and people typically have replaced the item already this speaks to that whole rational actor part about, you know, basically, well, I need the functionality, so I'll buy another one, but I'll hold this back because I feel guilty about getting rid of it by just throwing it away, so I'll see if I can't fix it.
1: How do we change the, the you know, the big, how do we move the, the big boulder? You know, you've done an amazing job just, you know, I use the word evangelizing, you know, getting out into communities and fostering people to do repairs you're
0: not going to like the answer. <laughs> I'm
1: willing to hear it.
0: We, we have to pay more for the items. I mean, those upstream and downstream costs really need to be factored in, and they need to be precious to us. They can't just be what somebody else. I'm, I'm, I'm co-opting this term from somebody else I can't attribute to because I can't remember. But we have too many of what I call consumer trifles they're just like they're they're nothing. Like we're coming up soon to Halloween, the biggest commercial holiday, you know, in terms of people buying stuff that they're going to put out on their porch for one night and throw away the next morning. And and just you know, if 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 it costs them 10 10x the price, I think they think they tw- they probably think more about, oh, should I even buy this to begin with? And then am I willing to store it for th- another 365 days a year so I can hang it out on my front porch again next year?
1: So that's your thinking like extended, they talk about extended producer responsibility, that type of um, that type of concept.
0: Yeah. But, but, all right. So let me spin it the positive way, though, which is this idea that the global supply chain pe- breakdown during the pandemic has really shown us that we've reached kind of the limits of that function of that whole idea of Constantly searching for the low-cost manufacturer, and 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 there is a whole woke culture that's that's thinking about the idea of you know, well I could pay, x you know I'm exporting the labor and and the suffering to other countries if when I buy a shirt from Bangladesh as opposed to buying an American-made shirt, and and so as more people think about that and raise that consciousness. And 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 they, then you couldn't get it for any price because the because the global supply chain broke down. So imagine that we have a real more promising future where most of what we consume is local. That that you know, not just the food. I mean, everyone's big on the local food thing. But imagine we add to that a lot of these highly refined manufactured devices. I'm looking around my table at all the different things I have. That's why I was thinking. That's why I'm looking. You know, again. So imagine that the future really is hyperlocal, that most things that we consume are designed, built, serviced, and maintained in a local service area using locally available tools, materials, processes, and services. And part of what I'm doing at Fix-A-Clinic now is a university challenge to teach the next generation of practitioners, the next generation of designers and engineers, how to design for durability, maintainability, serviceability, repairability, alongside design for manufacturing. So So suppose we have a design challenge to pick some non-threatening thing to the manufacturers, a toaster oven or a stick blender or something, and say, how much of this can we source in New England right now? You know, or, or Northern California. I don't know how to define regionally. You know, Maybe it's the Mid-Atlantic or whatever. But how much of this can we source now? And over time, how can we make it so that more and more of the design can can leverage local sources of materials and parts, as opposed to parts that Oh, you know, there's only one manufacturer in Malaysia that makes it, or something
1: mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Stop, stop shipping and flying stuff back and forth across uh, from continent to continent to uh, to produce it, right? And, and start doing it locally. Yeah, yeah. A-
0: absolutely.
1: Yeah, it sounds amazing, but but what what needs to change to make that happen? Is it you know, obviously there's like things like 3D printing, right, where you're talking about local manufacturer 3D printing parts, but how do we do that how do we how do we move from from this global supply chain pulling stuff from china and africa and and South America to you know uh you know capacitors made in New England you know
0: and darn good capacitors we would hope <laughs> okay well, well that, you know we're not there yet and and you know I, I've seen enormous change during the course of my lifetime and you know you can only hope that this idea that look there, we saw it early in the pandemic when nobody could get any PPE and so people started sewing coronavirus masks as a way to get out of the house okay if nothing else so so because you couldn't get a mask to save your life so that's you know that that's that's a rudimentary example that's non sophisticated you know that's a long ways from having a wafer fab in Duxbury OK, but 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 the, but but, you know, you, you got to hope over time that we might be able to think about how you start to to, to move more of that, to and, and, and so another benefit you get is mass customization. Right. So rather than everybody having to buy the same toaster, you know, that, that you could have you could or you could have a special toaster that matches your kitchen decor perfectly and starts on the defrost bagel setting because that's what you use every morning. And then if any part of it breaks, you have the digital file for that. And so you send it off to the micro factory. That's a couple of towns away to manufacture the new part that you snap in and and off you go again. So, so you, we might pay more, but the benefit might be, we get more of exactly what we want and it lasts a lot, lot longer.
1: Peter, what's coming up next for uh, for Fixit Clinic? We're coming out of the pandemic. We've got you. you you're talking about this blend of in-person and and vir- and, and virtual uh, Fixit clinics. What what should we expect? So, uh,
0: we're not going to do the monolithic events. We're, we'll transition away from this idea of having this big event at a public library on a Saturday with hundreds of uh, hundreds of people, and instead move more towards a ubiquitous or pervasive repair model, where you know, in my dream of dreams, you know, people just present to the reference librarian at the library and say, here's my broken thing. And they say, okay, let's research how you might start fixing it. Here's the toolkit, start, uh, start taking it apart in the carol. And by the way, you know, have you been online, you know, to the discord server and see if anybody else has had this same problem. And that way we can, we can have repair being much more available when people need it, as opposed to having to wait for an event. Uh, and and just have it so it's basically there all the time. So I'm calling that like pervasive or ubiquitous repair facility. The other thing we've done is we've expanded to repairing our shared public property and community assets. And that came out of the pandemic as well when the ventilator stockpile was all broken. And so we're we're ready to step up and help. You know, look, our tax dollars pay for this stuff, okay? If the the microwave at the, the police station breaks down, you know, don't go out and buy, you know, think about repair first, as opposed to just immediately going out and purchasing another one.
1: I wanted to ask you about the Chromebook, uh, about the Chromebook. Um, oh yeah, of course. Um, situation. Uh, Cause we, we were, we we're on a Slack together. We were talking about this. Um, obviously during the pandemic, we saw this huge shift in the public schools to remote education. A lot of districts bought a lot of Chromebooks to um give to students who did not have access to a computer at home so that they could do that. You pointed out um, that we're, we're kind of uh, running towards a cliff because a lot of those Chromebooks have basically end of life um, that it d- doesn't have to do anything with the operation of the, of the hardware. It's, it's really when Google decides to stop supporting the software or the or manufacturer decides to stop supporting the device. Um, Can you just talk about kind of that situation and and what I know you've done some stuff locally there in California to try and um, prevent these things from ending up in landfills. But um, but what's going on with that?
0: Okay, so it's not just some Chromebooks, it's all of them. (laughs) So uh, the whole business model for Chromebooks, and I don't know who saw, you know, who came up with this, but basically after a certain amount of time, there's a thing called the AUE, the automatic expiry date, Uh, automatic AUE automatic update expiry. Okay. So basically Google, some, some combination of Google and the manufacturer choose not to support the item anymore. It no longer gets updates from, of the Chrome software. And that's the whole darn point. Okay. Is that you're constantly being refreshed and constantly getting all this secure. It's, 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 it's bulletproof. And, and anytime there's a new threat, immediately your Chromebook ups, updates with to protect it. Okay. So so you, so at that point, what are you going to do, especially if you're one of Google's corporate or the, or the manufacturer's corporate customers, where you basically you have thousands of these devices or so your school system. They're kind of like Google offers the whole back office thing to make sure they're secure and that only the YouTube videos that your teachers approve will be allowed to be viewed by the kids on these Chromebooks and stuff. So it's so this whole kind of web of stuff. So so now, of course, we're going to end up having purchased all these Chromebooks during the pandemic to support. Um, long distance learning, they're going to end up with a ton of Chromebooks that they're going to basically expire. And at this point, they feel like their only option is to e-waste them because you know, there's a sense that they're junk. Now, it turns out that for a lot of Chromebooks and it's processor specific and stuff, there's a write protect screw inside the device that if you open it up, remove the write protect screw, it will load any operating system. It Mm -hmm. will load windows, it will load any Linux, you know, you could, you could probably hack it to load Mac OS if you want mm-hmm. it. And so that gives yeah, this perfectly, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Chr- yeah. Chromium and or, um, cloud ready cloud, which ready is this company long, right. that made an right. independent one and now Google purchased them. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So, so there's a ton of initiatives, you know, people are resourceful around the world. And just like we talked about the Europeans being big on r- repair, once again they have less to lose by by exploring this stuff so hackers around the world have basically figured out how to add different operating systems to to chromebooks some are specific to a specific model some are highly generalizable like in the last month or two i found out a version that basically leverages google's own chromebook kernel to form as the basis for being able to basically and then you just put whatever operating system on top of that layer so so everything works on the device i mean that's great And it it seems like really easy to do at this point. So uh, you wonder what they're going to put in place to thwart that. So, yeah, so I've been trying to work with local school systems to think about how to keep these Chromebooks in service, if not within the school system itself, at least distribute them to the community. Give every graduating senior a Chromebook, you know, that they they can get, that they can use to... Running whatever operating
1: system, Ubuntu or... or Right, Right,
0: right. And think about the local resilience data powers too, because then we have this whole generation of kids who know how to hack their stuff, right? And think about these issues, understand, oh wait a minute, I didn't know that by not using a VPN they, they were all my privacy was leaking out. You know, this I think the, the kind of tech savvy population we need for the future is really enhanced by using these these things that are otherwise considered e waste as tools for learning and for extending people's knowledge about what's going on with them in the world.
1: I mean, has Google and or the the, the manufacturers of these? I don't, I don't I mean there are many different Chromebook manufacturers, but have have they been uh, acknowledged this problem and taken steps to try and avert all these things just being tossed in the landfill?
0: Not as far as I know. And And I don't know how the secondary market. so so the same thing that happens with Apple devices where they're cloud locked and you can't reuse them even when you get them because they're permanently cloud locked to the original owner's um, iCloud account. These school specific Chromebooks, and probably for any other corporate Chromebooks that are out there, they are, they are somehow provisioned to the, the school district or to the company. So there would have to be a step on the part of the school district or the company to deprovision them first. Once they deprovision them, you know, then, then you're great. But but I, I got part of my awareness of this was some e-waste guy who he gets chromebooks he's got somebody who will give him $20 for a chromebook no one no questions asked and I'm like who's that <laughs> and what are they doing with them especially like how do they deal with it if they can't re- deprovision them so so there so somebody's figured out there's a market but nobody's figured out there's a broad market but look, from a civilization perspective, every school system. There are fifty thousand school systems in the United States. All right, every one of them. There's local tax dollars going in. It should be yeah. going into the education of the kids. It shouldn't be going into having to replenish this hardware on a yeah. regular basis. These were
1: big expenditures back in twenty twenty for for sure. I mean, Heck yeah, paid yeah. for
0: by you know government stimulus money of some yeah. sorts.
1: Yeah. So. Interesting. Something to keep an eye on, I think, um, as as we go as we go forward, because these these end end of life, these death dates, are, are fast approaching. I think for many districts, and given that so many districts went into these programs at the same time, I think we're gonna we're gonna see them all kind of hitting these walls at the same time as well.
0: Yeah. No. That's so that one, and there's the general one, like for example with HIPAA, the Health Insurance, Protective Act, which basically says that. If any laptop or cell phone or tablet has any user identifiable data on it, it's got to be destroyed. And I actually don't know, I don't know if this is a, pol- this is a policy of, so basically anybody trying, any hospital, any univ- research university, any teaching hospital trying to donate, um, you know, perfectly good devices, Mm. you know, they they basically like the laptops, the hard drives have to be removed and physically destroyed, but that's Mm. what they're choosing to do. Now, I don't know if it's because of litigation Mm. or because that's actually what's required in the federal guidelines for proper handling of data. And, and I'd like to know that for sure. Like UCSF here in California had a $5 million lawsuit from a data breach like that. So their, their attitude is basically, well, we're not taking any chances about giving, these, giving this stuff away. We're throwing it, you know, we're basically making sure it's all properly mm-hmm. e-wasted and destroyed. Yeah. You know. And so that's millions of dollars of, mm-hmm. of you know, stuff. And, yeah. and so I bring that up because the Europeans, so the Europeans have a similar health directive thing like HIPAA but they don't have to do the same thing. They basically use our Department of Defense's data, data scrambling algorithms to scramble the data. And if, if they do that in Europe, that's okay. Then, mm-hmm. then you can reuse the device. Right, <laughs> right. So it's ironic that the Europeans are using our own data scrambling algorithms to like say it's okay to reuse this, that stuff. But yeah. in the United States, you're like, oh, no, no, you gotta crush it.
1: Yeah, interesting. Jack, any final questions for our guest?
2: You're, you've talked about how right to repair has kind of caught fire, as it were. How has your view on repair changed? You said you become more militant. Have you become more strongly focused on environmental issues through it? How has that changed for you personally?
0: Oh yeah, so so two levels. One, at least two levels, come to mind right away. Um, just look, I'm, I, I'm steeped in this stuff, okay? I was born in the Bronx and, you know, like going down to Canal Street in Manhattan to buy cheap tchotchkes and stuff, you know, like it, it's all part of my life too. But then, you know, we just get so little value out of this stuff that was like so much energy went into making it. Ref- like, You think about all the stuff, everything from the 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 stuff that have been mined and refined to the conflict metal wars, to all this stuff to make something that someone's going to use for one Halloween and throw away, you know, so I've had to sort of like face up to my own contribution to that. And then the other thing that's happening is, as I mentioned earlier, because things are becoming more a combination of hardware and software fix the clinic is more and more about digital equity, digital inclusion, the the software components of what keep us from being able to repair things, repair things properly, repair them effectively. So, so I'm, you know, trying to be laser focused on a future where not only is, do people think repair is possible, but it should actually be easy to repair. You know, things should have, you know, smartphones should have removable batteries like they used to and not be sort of glued in there super tightly. So, you know, I'm trying to paint it in that promising future of the mass customization, manufacturing on demand, local resiliency through local manufacturing model. And I agree, we're a long ways off from that. But in some ways, the, the pandemic and the global supply chain breakdown during that sort of twisted our arms to say, oh, we're, we're vulnerable if we don't have that. And, and more and more people are realizing that. And as you know, I'm not just doing it for us in North America. I mean, think about the whole continent of Africa coming online. I mean, China's Belt and Road Initiative was really designed to basically make Africa a consumer of highly manufactured refined goods in China. You know, why can't Africa have their own wafer fabs?
1: Peter Mui of Fix It Clinic, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to uh, Jack and I on What The Fix Podcast. It's been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having
0: me. I'm Welcoming back anytime and I'll talk your viewers ears off again.
1: I guarantee you we'll have you back. <laughs>